In every episode, our guests are going to share their mantra with you to set the tone for the rest of the show. This is something that just organically happened when I started recording these episodes, so I thought, if my guests are repeating themselves, then it must be important. I can't wait to introduce you to Harriet Cabelli. Harriet's mantra is, it's not what happens to me, it's how I respond to what happens to me. It's not what happens to me, it's how I respond to what happens to me. It's not what happens to me, it's how I respond to what happens to me. Let's go meet Harriet Cabelli. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. And in every episode, our guests are going to share a book that has made an impact on the way they do things. In this episode, Harriet Cabelli recommends Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Harriet will explain why she recommends the book in greater detail during the episode, but if you want to read the book for free with a 30-day trial membership to Audible, just go to audibletrial.com slash handle everything and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash handle everything. Welcome to the Handle Everything podcast, where people who have a lot on their plate come to learn how to open doors to opportunities by handling it all in a healthy way. I'm your host, Tara Bradford, a former ICU nurse turned executive coach based in New York City. I am here with Harriet Cabelli, and Harriet is a social worker and positive psychology coach. She counsels clients as they cope and grow through their grief and loss, challenges, and adversities. Death of a loved one, divorce, illness, and any critical life-changing circumstance can become a springboard for growth and change and renewed meaning and purpose, which she helps her clients work through in her company, Rebuild Life Now. She's one of the coaching experts on 970 AM, The Answer, Conversations with Joan, and has appeared on ABC and Fox News as a parenting coach. Having worked in the New York City public schools in Queens for 20 years as an early childhood social worker, she continues with her interest of helping parents and children, both in her private practice and as a facilitator of many parenting workshops. She also leads women's groups and parent book clubs. Harriet published independently her first book last year, Living Well Despite Adversity, Inspiration for Finding Renewed Meaning and Joy in Your Life. Welcome to the show, Harriet. Hi, Tara. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you. And I start off the show with the same question every time. (laughs) Tell us how full is your plate? Can you give us a quick peek into your day-to-day life and all the responsibilities you're juggling at any given moment? Okay, so the morning is my favorite time to get in what I call the self-care piece, which is my exercise. I have a whole routine. I do weights. I do a treadmill. I do my trampoline, which is my favorite. Not all of them every day, but I, I mix it up, but something of those every day of the week. And then I do my 
meditation. So both of those are what I start my day off, and I feel really good about that. So even if I have a very early morning appointment, no matter what time the appointment is, I set my clock and I get up like 40 minutes earlier to get those two in because I look at it as what I, the benefits that I gain from doing the exercise and the meditation far outweigh the extra 40 minutes of sleeping. So that's my motivation to get up and and do that. So that's how I start my day. And then my day unfolds. Every day is a little different because I have my own practice. I I used to be in the school system, so that was much more structured and regimented. But now it's more, you know, my own scheduling and it's a nice balance because some days I'm helping my daughter out and babysit and, and I have women's groups and I have clients and I speak. So juggling all different types of work opportunities, which I love and getting some personal loving time in with grandkids and some personal fun here and there along the way. So it's a nice, I have to say at this point in my life, it's a nice balance and a really nice mix because my kids are older and I'm an empty nester. So I don't have the day-to-day stress or that treadmill feeling of, of, you know, raising young kids. So that's, that's a big plus And it helps me to be able to, at this point in my life, focus more on what I really want to be doing work-wise. And you also have a husband who I've seen make a cameo in your videos on social media. And I've seen your trampoline too. Yeah. So my husband is still working. He's a lawyer, but he has, you know, some time off here and there. He also um, is a little more flexible, not so much because he works, he's a trial lawyer, but he's winding down. I like to say I'm winding up and he's winding down, but that's okay. We, we, we go and have fun together during our, our times together. Otherwise he's in his cave and I'm in mine. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, it sounds like you have a pretty good handle on everything that's on your plate. Do you think as an empty nester now, do you think it's easier as an empty nester or was there a certain season of your life where you felt like it was hard to handle everything? Oh, yes. It's definitely, I feel it's easier, but it's been an adjustment. I mean, I'm doing this now eight years as an empty nester, but it took a while to get in this flow. But it was much, much harder and more stressful when I was raising my kids and I have my middle daughter has special needs. And when I look back on those years, when I'd come home from work and then I always used to say my work began at four o'clock when I came home because I worked in the school system. So I came out at three till I got home was four. And I always said my work begins then because every day there were appointments with her, this therapist, that therapist and cooking and shopping and errands and everything with that dealt with the kids. I have three daughters. So the stress level then was very high and everything was piggybacking appointments. And I found that to be um, extremely difficult and, and stressful. And it was only in those, I don't know, the last few years of before, well, my older daughter moved out first. She got married. I would say in the last... I don't know, five years of having at least one at home, did I really start to focus on myself and self-care and exercise? Until then, I look back and I say, I I can't believe how I did it all without ever putting myself into anything. 
for all those years and getting through it. <laughs> I, I, you know, sometimes we do things and we do them and then we look back and say, I don't know how I did it. And if I had to do it again, I could never do it. But I right. guess we do what we have to do at the time, right? Even if we're just spinning our wheels and plugging away day to day and waking up and starting all over again, we do what we have to do. Right. So in those moments, you know, saying, looking back, you don't know how you did it, but in the moment, if we transported you back to those moments, do you remember feeling overwhelmed or stressed or did you not have time to feel that way? No, I, I remember feeling that way. I remember feeling that way. My, my biggest stressors I feel were time, time restraints, time constraints, um, appointments, piggybacking, getting things done on time, I, which is what I like to do. Um, and I could never feel like I got into bed early enough and had enough sleep, but I mean, that's, yeah, no, I definitely remember that feeling. Um, I could have used the meditation way back then, but that wasn't, uh, in my purview at all back then, which is why when I, when I see parents, I really try to emphasize to them the importance of self care when you're raising kids. I mean, I, I wasn't doing it back then. I really started, um, I'd say when I got when I was getting divorced and I said to myself, I got to keep myself healthy for my kids. I better start inputting something for me. But until then, nothing just kept running, 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 running. Right. That's great advice for parents. And I'm curious, has your stress or overwhelm changed? The circumstances externally have changed since then now as an empty nester. But when you feel overwhelmed or stressed, has that experience changed from back then to now? I, f I feel that it has, like you say, separate from the external circumstances being different. I feel that I'm much more in tune and connected to my insides and how I'm feeling and what I need to be doing to help myself possibly feel differently or get out of my funk or I know what I need to do if I know I'm having a, a long day to take breaks or to even take a five-minute meditation break in the middle. I've done like so much of this uh, continuing ed and courses and in internalizing it to my day-to-day -day that I feel I have a much better handle on it, even separate from the fact that circumstantially it is a little easier. But of course, the true test is I can't go back in time and say, would I be handling it differently? I hope I would, knowing what I know now and inputting into my life, you know, then what I'm doing now. I hope so. But I do feel that, um, yeah, internally I have a I mean, way, way beyond. I mean, I feel like I've really evolved in that regard and continually, continuously learning. I call myself like a, a lifelong learner, always, always learning and interested in, in taking on new things and challenges and getting better at this, that and the other thing. I love that. And you talk a lot about the internal awareness that you have now. So how do you know, what is that first sign that you feel internally when you're starting to get stressed or overwhelmed and you acknowledge that maybe it's not productive or it's not helping you? So for me, it seems that my go-to feeling is getting angry and getting frustrated and feeling like, like snappy, 
And of course, my husband bears the brunt of that one because <laughs> he's the only <laughs> one around. But I mean, I tend to be like my M.O. is I tend to be a yeller. And when my kids were in the house, yeah, I I was a yeller. And my older daughter, specifically, when she was older, would say, Ma, she would like train me. She'd say, Ma, you know, you could say the same thing and not yell. And I have to say that she really helped me curb that in terms of my parenting. So I really do give her credit for that. Doesn't mean I never raise my voice now, but never really to my kids. Of course, they're adults. So, I mean, you're not going to go raise your voice to your, to your adult children, but I do to my husband still. And I'm really working on that. Uh, that is my go-to stressed out feeling. And that's how it manifests in terms of, of raising my voice, being snippy, um, being short. And I, it, it's still hard. I mean, listen, we're a work in progress. It's still hard for me to get a complete handle on that. But um, that's my, that's my personal work. And it is a lifelong journey. You said you're a lifelong learner. This is one of those lessons that I think we we learn over and over again throughout our lives and we refine it and get better and then something else pops up. Right, right. I, I always say like um, now that, the, you know, the whole Mr. Rogers thing came out, his documentary and then his film, and my kids used to watch him and when they were little and, and I'd hear him in the background and say, oh my God, his voice, it's just so boring and bland. How could you <laughs> be like that? Is that for real? And now I, you know, now I watch the documentary and the movie and I'm just so enamored and I'm so in awe thinking, you know, I'm never going to be a type B personality like that. I'm I'm a, a classic type A personality, but just to be able to take some of that and really internalize some of that um, calmness is to me incredible. So whereas I used to see it as boring and bland, now it's like, oh my God, it's the most amazing thing. And, you know, I, I, I work towards having a little bit more control over my stress and um, frustration levels so that I could be less reactive and more responsive. That's a great point and a great example. I grew up with Mr. Rogers, so I remember loving his voice <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, kids love him, loved him because he's so soothing. I mean, how, you know, as adults, we could go, oh, God, give me a break. But as a kid, Oh my God, how soothing. And now I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I know we're going to talk about a time in your life that was really stressful. And, and one of the ones that you and I have spoken about off the air was when your daughter was in the hospital. Yes. So I think that was a time when you were under a lot of pressure and, and it's, maybe one of the reasons why you became a therapist, but I'll let you tell the story. Yeah. So there's actually two critical points. One was when she was diagnosed with neurological disabilities when she was a little less than a year. Um, and one was when she had a medical crisis when she was 19 that where she almost died and she was in the hospital for a year. So in terms of my changing my career and becoming a therapist, that came out of my work with an amazing therapist after I received her diagnosis when she was a baby. And 
I was helped so greatly by this person in, in Evanston, Illinois, who was a grief therapist. And I always thought that grief was, you know, the death over the death, death of a loved one. But I quickly learned with him that grief was any kind of a loss that just shattered us. And the loss of that perfect child, quote unquote, that we expect when we're pregnant and what goes with it is the loss of of our hopes and dreams for, you know, the, the, the how we envision our child to be and to grow was devastating, knowing that she would have lifelong disabilities. So when I was with him for a year and I was also in a parent support group um, in Chicago at the time with an amazing group facilitator. And then when I moved back to New York, I said, I have to do this work. I mean, I was always interested in psychology. At the time, I was a special education teacher. But I moved back to New York after being in Chicago for four years. And I entered a program for social work saying, this is what I want to do. I want to work with people going through loss and grief of any kind and helping them pick up the pieces, you know, albeit in a different way with a new reality and a new normal and help them have a good life through it all and despite it because if we just say that's it my life is over after we're devastated over a loss then that's it i mean we've only got one life to live so the idea of of helping someone move beyond their loss you know integrating it into their lives and moving beyond it to rebuild which is why i named my practice rebuild life now was uh the most meaningful thing for me, which so it's out of it's out of her having been born with disabilities that I changed my career and went on to school to become a therapist. Her medical crisis years later was something else, but in terms of my becoming um, a therapist, it came out of my work um, with my amazing therapist due to her diagnosis and my grief around that. That's incredible. And the work you're doing is so needed. There's so much grief in the world right now, and it's hard to make sense of all of it. So I love what you said about loss being any loss. It doesn't have to be loss of life. It could be loss of a job, loss of function, loss of a partner um, through divorce, and many other feeling or many other situations can cause these feelings of grief and yes and loss absolutely i mean nowadays retirement is huge with the baby boomers and and seeing people who come into my office who are at a loss because what have they lost they've lost their identity as a professional they've lost their social their social structure at work and colleagues they've they've lost structure and purpose and that sense of accomplishment there's a lot so we don't think of grief like that but it's it's really tied into anything that really matters to us that we've been connected to and that we no longer have or it's in a new form or a different way that's loss and and we grieve that obviously not all in the same level of intensity but there's a certain sense of grief to a lot of situations. A best friend could move away or we could move. And there's a sense of, of loss. And what is grief? Grief is the emotional response to a loss. 
So therefore, it comes in any in in, in many many different types of situations and life transitions. Being an empty nester is a loss for many, many parents. They, they're at a loss once their kids move out. Like, what am I doing now? Where am I needed? What's my purpose? Who's, who's going to, you know, who, whose laundry am I going to wash to the point where I, I have friends who still wash their adult kids' laundry because, well, at least it's a sign he still needs me. I mean, it's almost laughable, but, you know, you can get it. You, you have a sense of that we all... F- long to feel needed and useful. And sometimes people go through a very rough time, even as an empty nester, until they recalibrate their life. And as I like to use that word, repurpose. Okay, now, now what am, now what am I here for? Now what's my purpose? If they were really connected to their parenting. You know, you bring up a good point about feeling needed and useful and I think our listeners probably know by now, but in case this is your first episode listening, I used to be a nurse um, and Harriet knows this as well. I worked in the pediatric intensive care unit for a little while and I can't imagine being a parent sitting at the bedside and feeling helpless. Like you can't, you want so badly to do everything for your child in that moment in the hospital and you don't know what you can do. Was there a moment with your daughter where you were in a situation like that? Uh, yeah, I mean that's a great segue into <laughs> into that next major phase or period in our lives. When my daughter was uh, about twelve, she developed ulcerative colitis, which is a irritable uh, a disease of the digestive system of the large colon. It's an irritable bowel disease having nothing to do with her neurological disabilities. It's unfortunately just a medical condition and it's uh it's rough and it's hard to maintain and you get flare-ups and blah 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 well she was under control for many years with the medicine and then once one day literally one day out of the clear blue she developed a flare-up that unfortunately was never able to be controlled by medication and we tried numerous medications i'm trying to give you the short version here so we tried this heavy duty uh, immune suppressant medication along with high doses of steroids. Anyway, she was the one in a million who contracted a secondary infection. In other words, we were looking to preserve her colon and not to have to have it removed. So they were trying all different types of medicines. And from one of them, despite the fact that she was having her blood tested every week, she, like I said, she was the one in a million who contracted a a secondary infection. She was put in a drug-induced coma on a respirator. She was like that for four months. It's a miracle she survived. They did not expect her to survive. Um, she developed nocardia pneumonia, which is uh, something that AIDS patients get, and a whole slew of other things. At one time, she had nine, nine tubes coming out of her body. Anyway, so for four months, she was on a respirator. Then she was weaned off of it uh, as she miraculously survived, and she, she had a trach. She was moved to a um, a rehab hospital up in Westchester where she was for nine months, having to relearn every motor bodily function from lifting a finger to swallowing to breathing on her own. So when you talk about being in a hospital with a very sick child, yeah, I was there for a year watching every beep and bleep of every machine and thinking to myself, oh boy, there but by the grace of God, go any of us who have a life because in a second, our life can be sniffed out. 
as as we saw recently now with this horrific plane crash. I mean, you, nobody knows when our time is up. But when when you're sitting there listening to these machines that are breathing for a human being and they're checking every minuscule of of oxygen and carbon dioxide, I don't even know, all the stuff that we don't even realize how our body functions. It's amazing. It's amazing we're healthy when we're healthy, that it all just works together. So um, out of that experience, that year-long medical catastrophe, near catastrophe, um, and thank God she's she's alive and she's fully recovered. So she's, she's really a walking miracle. Out of that came, um, my book and my final desire to leave the board of education, which I was wanting to for years, but this gave me the final push because I said, after witnessing that for a year and returning to my school job, it just didn't feel right. I said, I just can't go back to life as it was. It just, I had a lot of angst about that. I said, I have to be doing something more. Like when people unfortunately have, you know, terrible outcomes, their child dies. A lot of people go on and do very meaningful things with starting foundations or organizations or, you know, any, any, any big thing. And obviously many people don't do that, but they go on in their way and they're able to pick up the pieces. And I thought to myself, I had The opposite. I had a miraculous outcome. I need to do something to honor that. And returning back to my regular school job just didn't cut it for me. I just felt zhuzhing inside that I needed to do something more. So eventually I left. I mean, it's called retired, but I don't like to use that word retired because I went on to do more of what I wanted to do to begin with, which is work with people one-on-one and groups and, you know, all the stuff that I'm doing now. So for me, it's just been an amazing journey these last eight years since I left my school job. Wow. And I think what you're referring to is post-traumatic growth syndrome, which can happen after grief and loss. Yes. And it's a way to add meaning into your life. And I, I love the way you've incorporated that into your into your practice now, yes. Rebuild Life Now, all about bringing meaning into your life without necessarily having to deal with adversity, which you focus on in your women's group. Right, right. With women who are rediscovering who they are in the world after empty nesting or going through a life transition that doesn't necessarily have to be um, a loss right. of life or function. Right, right. The women's group is, is they've kind of named themselves uh, the, the WEG, <laughs> Women's Empowerment empowerment group. Yeah. It's, it's women who, I mean, I, I was seeing a need when I was doing a lot of different workshops and that where women were feeling that they've lost themselves somehow, be it through a personal challenge, a divorce, um, or just even just being a parent and just going through the rigmarole of daily parenting and saying, wait a second, I don't even know who I am anymore. Like, kind of losing yourself along the way, whether you're a parent or a a professional or or a a caregiver to an elderly parent, somehow we, we take ourselves out and we forget that we even have a life or that, like, who are we? So it's kind of reconnecting with who we are as 
people slash women beyond our role as, and whatever, fill in the blank, spouse, caregiver, parent, grandparent, professional, um, widow, widower, whatever. So yeah, it's, 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 it's powerful. I, I, I love that because again, it's, it's helping people live on in the best way possible despite whatever challenges they've had or continue to have because we all have challenges. I mean, you live long enough, every human being has challenges. So the the question the key for me is always not necessarily taking away the challenge. I mean, we'd love to do that, but hey, in life things happen, but how do we live on well and with a rich life through them? And that's that's not easy, but it is a choice. It really is a choice in how we and how we carry on through our difficulties. Right. It is a choice and it's about paying attention to the lessons along the way too, I think. And I'm curious to know in that year that you were in the hospital with your daughter, what did you learn about advocating as a parent and also advocating for others during that time? Because I think that that's a key point in your story about changing and reinventing your career path. Yeah. Well, advocating is huge. Um, <laughs> what I learned, I mean, it, it's, it's a funny thing. It's not funny, but I, I wonder to myself when I would sit there day in and day out, 12, 15 hours a day between myself, my, my ex-husband and, and my, and my current husband. I mean, we would, someone would be there all the time for, for a year basically. And when she was in the rehab, I moved up there and lived up there. And I think to myself, what do people do who don't have someone advocating and watching over? I mean, as good as the nurses and doctors were, and they were amazing. You know, I started a gratitude journal at that point in my life, ironically enough. And one of the things I would consistently write in, and by the way, it works, even if you write the same thing every day, I would consistently write how grateful I am for the amazing doctors and nurses that were caring for her. Because at the time she went into the hospital, we didn't have a choice. She was just admitted as an emergency. And we ended up in, in a fantastic place with just angels of doctors and nurses. And what I, I just kept thinking, what do people do who don't have family to sit and, and just be there and advocate? Oh, so I started to say, so even though they were all great, you still want to be there and, and keep up every day with all the minutiae of what's going on, the progress, the lack of progress, the this, the that. And there were, there were kids who didn't have that. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody for not being there. I'm just saying for the patient themselves, it's so important to have that. And I just, I feel sad when I see that there are people who don't. I mean, what about older people who, who don't have family or anybody? That really saddens me because you just, you, you have to be on top of things. You really do. You just have to be. I, I, I don't know what else to say. So, I mean, just watching that was, was a lesson. I, I don't know how to figure it for those who don't have it, but it's, it's just so crucial. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because in my 10 years working at the bedside in the ICU as a nurse, I had plenty of patients who didn't have families. And I think through my nursing background and training, one of the things that is repeated over and over again is being an advocate and having a lot of empathy for the person who's in the bed, regardless of their background or where they came from, 
explore what they've done to get themselves into that situation. I worked in trauma for a little bit and um, saw some really interesting situations and heard a lot of stories. And to be able to empathize with that person and think about it in terms of what would they want, not what what do I want or what do the doctors want or what do even their family members want. But to really think, what do they want and how can I help them get what they want out of this experience right. is a really, really powerful position to be in because you have such a an opportunity to make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. No, no, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, and I'm sure you've you've seen this as a nurse. Um, one of the nurses, when we first, when she first was admitted said, this is going to be a long haul if she even survives. Um, go home and get a really nice picture of your daughter because we want to hang it over her bed so that whoever is in her room can see that and can feel more connected to the human being behind all these tubes. And I thought, wow. And I, I that has stayed with me forever. I, I just love that whole concept because it's so true. You, you don't, you see someone so sick and you have no clue what were they like before. Not that we were going to know it from a picture in terms of their whole personality and their actual life. But when you see a picture, the before, you're connecting much more to a person who has a life as opposed to this person who's laying there almost lifeless and not even be able to you know, and basically unrecognizable from who they were because they're so sick and either so drawn or so puffed out and tubes coming out of every hole. So that was, that was a beautiful thing to me, having that picture and having the nurse say that. And it hung, it hung there for the whole year, be it in the hospital and, and in her rehab. I love that. And I think it is really helpful for the hospital staff to see what that person's life was like. What were they doing in the picture? What did they look like? Because you're right, they don't look like themselves. And especially being in a drug-induced coma and on life support, it, when you're not moving or responding, it's it's really hard to recognize the person or to know their personality or or even just not hearing their voice and they, them not being able to talk to you. Right. So. I love that that person asked you to bring the picture. Yeah. A big picture too, not just a little picture, but a big picture. I mean, we brought in like a, a an 8 by 10 <laughs> or an 11 by 14, not just a little thingy on the night table. It hung above her head on the wall. You couldn't miss it when you came in. So it was anyway, it was it was very significant. I love it. And I want to shift gears a little bit for any parents who are listening who might not have had the same experience. Maybe their kids haven't been sick or they don't have disabilities, but they still need to focus on self-care now before they're empty nesters because it's a huge opportunity to make a difference in their own lives and their parenting style. So could you tell our listeners how the parents that you work with experiencing stress and overwhelm can start to recognize or be more aware of when they might be holding themselves back as parents by not focusing on themselves. Right. Well, 
again, you know, that's a, that's a decision. It's a choice and it's a mindset to say that no matter how much, uh, how much I'm doing for my kids, for my spouse, for my, for whoever, that I count too. And as the saying goes, you can't pour from an empty cup. And unless I make that decision that I count and I'm important, it's not going to happen. So really the first thing to do is to make that conscious decision and intention to say, I have to mark myself and pencil myself into my calendar as well, no matter what. I have a meeting. I have a doctor's appointment. Well, I'm penciling myself in. I have my whatever appointment, my gym appointment with myself, my walking in the park appointment with myself, my good conversation over coffee with my friend for an hour, whatever it might be. Even if it's not big things, micro steps, micro moments can be very, very nourishing, you know, because we can't just say, oh, I don't have the time to this class and I'm going to wait for this vacation once a year. That's all great, but that doesn't help with the managing. And I use the word managing, managing our daily stress when when we're raising kids, when it's when it's really a lot on our plate, working, raising kids, or taking care of elderly parents, there's a lot to juggle for everybody, no matter what, what that plate looks like. There's always a lot. And so first and foremost is making that intention that I matter and that I'm giving myself wee bits of time here and there throughout the week. And like I said, it doesn't have to be big. You know, it's an example when I was writing my book and I would say, um, oh, I don't have three hours to sit and write. I come home from work and then the kids and when am I sitting there compiling all of this? Um, and peop- I remember a couple of friends saying to me, you can't wait for those three, four hours. You're never going to have it unless you just do it in the middle of the night and not sleep. You've got to like grab the hour here, the hour there. And once I started deciding, I guess, I guess I got to do that. That's when things changed. And I say the same thing about self-care. We can't just wait to say, well, I need three hours to do this. Well, we don't have three hours, but how about 20 minutes? You know, like a 20-minute walk during lunch is better than no walk. Or 10 minutes of sitting quietly is better than nothing. Or 10 minutes of putting our feet up and just sitting with a cup of coffee or hot chocolate is better than nothing. So... We have to grab at those micro moments of replenishment and nourishment, and that goes a long way. You know, the philosopher Voltaire has a great quote, and I always use it because I I live by it. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think it's a great line. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We can't wait for that perfect time, for that perfect amount of time to to decide, okay, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. It it could be good enough. It could be small, small moments, small segments of time. And that becomes good enough. And the good enough can really make a big difference when you add them all together. I'm so glad you brought that up about being good enough and not trying to be perfect. Because when I work with parents, I hear them saying, I feel guilty if I'm not at a hundred percent of my kids' soccer games or, you know, dance recitals or whatever is going on with their kids. They feel bad if they have to miss Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. And then we. What advice would you give to parents who are feeling like they have to be perfect or else they need to feel guilty about it? 
And then we're putting more pressure on ourselves. And then we get more stressed and more anxious because it's self-induced, right? That perfectionism is self. We're putting that on ourselves. So then we're, 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 we're giving that extra anxiety and stress to ourselves. Again, we have to come around to deciding that perfection isn't what to aim for. It's got to be that we are good enough. And I, it's, it's not an easy place to get to because a lot of us are perfectionists. But if we can understand that being that way increases our anxiety and stress, and it also is not that a, not that great a role model for our kids. In other words, we want our kids to see that we're human. Human beings are fallible. There is no such thing as perfectionism in this humanity condition. There is just no, no such thing as that. So it, it, it's just so futile to be going after that. And to give our kids the role model that mistakes are fine, failure is fine, is, is a beautiful gift. And we have to adapt that as parents, uh, you know, to ourselves by letting ourselves off the hook when we're not perfect. Um, it's not easy for people to come by, but it's something to work towards. And it's, and it's really important in terms of our mental health because perfectionism is a recipe for disaster. And it also limits us because when we're just striving for, for, for perfection, if we feel we're not going to do something to our standards, then we're not even going to try. And isn't that sad that we wouldn't, that we would deprive ourselves of opening ourselves up for new opportunities and adventures and experiences because we feel I'm not going to do it good enough. So therefore better not to do it at all. Again, a lesson for our kids is, is to say we go for it. We try. And if we fail, we fail. But as, as we all know, when we come to the end of our life, I mean, it, this has been written about so many times. We don't, we don't regret our mistakes. We regret the things that we never, that we wanted to do and never did for whatever reason. Fear, usually it's out of fear, fear that I'm not going to do it well, fear that I'm going to fail. And that's really a big lesson. We want to know that we did and we do what we're, what we, what's important to us. Albeit, no matter what the outcome is, you know, I have to say, I wrote my book and I put it out there into the world. This was my personal project, something that came out of my daughter's year long hospitalization and her miraculous survival and recovery. This was one of my projects and it was very meaningful to me. I mean, it didn't become a bestseller. It's not like, oh my God, I'm doing this world tour, but I have, I feel so good that I did it, I accomplished it, and it was something important to me. So regardless of the outcome, I mean, sure, we all want something to succeed great, but I'm proud of myself that I stuck to it and it took me three years and I did it. And if I just waited and said, you know, it's not going to be good enough, it's not, it's not going to be perfect, I have to be guaranteed it's going to be this, that, I would never have done it and I wouldn't feel the the pride that I feel. So it, it's like Brene Brown says, we have to put ourselves out in that arena and just go for what's important to us 
regardless of the outcome, because we're not going to know it yet. I mean, we could we could visualize it and meditate it on it and manifest it maybe, but in reality, we're not going to know it. But wouldn't that be sad if we hold ourselves back from not doing what we really want, what our dreams and goals are, because we're afraid of failing, because what if it's not perfect? What if it's not good enough? So I think that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think to summarize what you're trying to say is that in order to raise resilient children, we have to become resilient and model that behavior for our kids, which resilience and perfectionism don't really go together. And I know that your daughter is now living independently as an adult. She has a job. She has her own apartment. And so... I believe that you've accomplished this as a parent as well with all of your children. Yep. And I'm very proud. I'm so proud of her. But again, <laughs> that was an intentional decision after we got her diagnosis with my uh, husband at the time where we sat down in our grief throughout those next few years and said, we're going to raise her to be as independent as possible. We don't know what that will look like. We don't know what the future will hold. But that was like our guiding post, our guiding philosophy in raising her um, was towards independence to whatever level she could achieve it. And um, I'm, I'm proud of, of where she is. I mean, when she first wrote, when she wrote her first check, when she was like in her twenties and she called me up and said, Ma, I wrote my first check. It was like, I had tears in my eyes. For me, that was like her going to Harvard. I know it's a little bit of exaggeration, but what I'm trying to say is we have to feel the, the joy in the potential that our child, that each child reaches according to their ability. Right. So for her, this was like a huge, huge thing. And and her her work yeah, today is chills. also huge. I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, it's OK. I have chills hearing you say that about writing her first check, because I think that is so important, whether your kid goes to Harvard or becomes a doctor or becomes you know, a graphic designer or or a, whatever job they decide to get or, you know, those little baby steps, even as an adult, even in your 20s, writing a first check to celebrate those small steps each day as being just as big as the big right. steps that we take in the big exactly. milestone. Because to that person, because to every person, it, it listen, small and big is relative. So for my daughter, writing a check was huge. Is it going to be huge to, to someone who's a CEO? Of course not. But we can't, we can't assign greatness in one way. It's got to be according to the individual, right? So everyone's greatness is going to look different according to that person's capabilities. And every human being has greatness in them, every human being. And it behooves us to find that and shine a light on it and 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 develop it in them right to the best of their what i mean what does it mean to say we develop our potential everyone's going to have a different 
a different level of potential, even though they say that we all have so much more than we're using just on a general, you know, human, humanity level. We have so much more than we are doing. But just to be in, in, in our day to day lives, every human being has strengths and every human being has potential and it behooves us to look to pull that from who we're tending to and who we're caring for, whether we're parents, teachers, grandparents, what nurses, what, whatever. We pull on that. We highlight that. And that's lifts people. So, yeah. So for, for her, that check or anything she does, I mean, she, she works in Trader Joe's. She does everything but the cash register because she can't do the math. And they love her and she loves it being there. And she's a people person. So that's, again, her strength is being utilized. I love that. And it's such an important lesson for all of us to lean into our strengths and not expect to be good at everything and not to force ourselves to do things that we're not good at, to just let go of that expectation. And I know that you work primarily with clients who are grieving or going through loss. And when you're in the middle of that and you're crying every day or you're just feeling lousy, it can feel like it's going to last forever. You're wondering, when is this going to end? Right. So how do your clients know when they've made it? Or how do they feel when they graduate from working with you? Because I want our listeners to know that grief and loss, it's a process that you work through, but it doesn't last right. forever. So it's a great question. How do they know? So one of my most recent clients who had lost her husband um, pretty suddenly, she quote unquote, I like the way you say graduated. She graduated when she said to me, I feel like I'm ready to enter the land of the living. And she was, she loved dancing. So her, her symbol was, I'm going dancing with my sister next Friday night. And she did that a couple of times and we continued seeing each other. And then shortly thereafter, she said, you know, I think I'm ready to stop because I'm, I'm entering the land of the living again and it feels good and I miss him to death and I cry, but I'm smiling more and I'm engaging more with my life. And it was like, Oh, I got the chills. I was like, that, that, that's terrific. So that's a signpost, right? When, when someone says, I feel like I'm ready to engage again, that's a biggie. That is a biggie. And it brings people to the next phase of working with you on meaning and purpose. Right. But these are, the, I just want to make very clear and emphasize these are baby, baby steps and it doesn't happen quickly and it, there's no calendar to it and no one can say, well, cause our society is not great on grief. And you know, we say, well, hey, you've been, you've been grieving for six months. Are you like, get with the program already? You ready to come to go out? You ready? Why are you still crying? Why are you still grieving? We're not so good with this stuff. So there's no calendar. Everyone's an individual when it comes to that. And it's baby steps. I mean, I worked with this woman over two years, so it didn't just happen overnight. And I, and I, I want to emphasize, even when I was in my grief therapy, because I do call my therapy after I had my daughter's diagnosis, grief work. I was there for a year. The only reason I stopped was because we were moving out of state back to New York. But I would say the first at least six, seven months was just going through ranting and raving of the horrific feelings. And that's what a lot of grief work is at first. It's just 
feeling and going into that hole of darkness of how bad you feel. Because unless we give voice to that and allow ourselves to feel it, we don't come through it in an intact way. There's a saying, you have to go through it to come through it. Or as David Kessler, the grief ex, a major grief expert in California who trained with, um, who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, he likes to say, you can't heal what you don't feel. I love that line. You can't heal what you don't feel. You have to feel it. As painful as it is, and we're a pill-popping society, and we love to numb because we don't want to feel, we need to feel. It doesn't break us. It doesn't kill us. It feels lousy. But that's what it takes to come through it, to go through it, to come through it. And, and with someone who's by your side where it feels safe, it works. And then starts the baby steps of taking that step out. Maybe I'll go here. Maybe I'll ask my friend to go out. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll go to a support group. But that doesn't happen right away. Absolutely. And for our listeners who don't know who Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is, she researched the stages of grief. So if you want to look that up to see what the stages are, then maybe some of them resonate with you as you're going through your grief work and grieving process to see that there is hope at the end of that cycle of grief. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it's, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily stages. She put it in as stages, but it's, you know, we can keep coming back to it. It's not like we come to the end and okay, I'm done. I'm done with grief. We could feel it when we hear a piece of music. We could feel it when we go someplace and we smell something that reminds us of something. So things can come up. For instance, when, when I, when, when everyone's going off and getting married and my daughter is not, my daughter who has disabilities, you know, it, it hurts. It doesn't mean we're done with it and we never feel bad again. We can feel bad again. We can cry again. There's nothing wrong with crying. We can feel sad, but we don't stay stuck in it. We don't go as deep into it once we've done the work. We feel it and we can feel it forever. It can always be a a source of sadness. We cry over a loved one forever, but it's different than when you're in the throes of that immediacy of it. Here you can go through your life and you can get to moments like waves. It'll come over you. The grief washes over you. You feel it and then it goes and then the sun comes out again. And another time you feel it, it goes. And again, you're reengaged with life. That's just normal. That's very normal. Right. Yeah, it's not right. linear. It doesn't go in stages right. and then you're done. It's like you can go forwards right. and backwards right. and in a circle. It's, it's a it's, complicated, it is complicated. But the main concept journey. here with the grief is important to get out there is it's normal. Grieving is not a pathology and it's nothing right. to be fixed. It's a normal part of life when we lose something that mattered to us deeply. Absolutely. And on that note, I want to wind down the interview a little bit. And at the end, we just have a little fun with a few rapid fire questions. So I want you to just say the first thing that pops into your head. What does it mean to feel successful to you? Uh, living life fully engaged in what, in what matters to me. What are you most looking forward to this year? Connecting deeply with more people in the work that I love and travel. <laughs> 
<laughs> and what's going to keep you up at night after this interview? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> the idea of being good <laughs> enough. <laughs> I want to be great enough. <laughs> <laughs> you are stepping into your greatness. <laughs> And what is your favorite book or resource? I know you mentioned a few throughout the episode. Oh, that's a that's an easy one for me. Man's Search for Meaning by Dr. Viktor Frankl. Life-changing book. Man's Search for Meaning. And what is your mantra? What's something you tell yourself every day when you wake up in the morning? It's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you. And the last question, what's the best way our listeners can get in contact with you? Oh, through my website, rebuildlifenow.com. Awesome. Because my uh, they can send an email, my phone number's there. It's all there. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Harriet, for spending this time with me today and with our listeners. Thank you, Tara. It's been a pleasure. This was great. What did you think? I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to let me know what you thought about this, just send me a message on Instagram at Tara Ray Bradford. My intention with the show is to share how other people are handling everything and to give you actionable steps to make positive changes in your life because of these episodes. I'd love to know what you thought. And if you want to check out the links and everything from the show, go on over to handleeverything.com. Be sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already and make sure you check out Harriet Cabelli. She has some amazing things going on at rebuildlifenow.com and also a free excerpt from her book on her website titled Living Well Despite Adversity, which I think would be helpful for anyone who is grieving a loss to hear stories from others who have gotten through it. She includes interviews with Meredith Vieira and Cheryl Strayed, to name a few. Thank you again to Harriet Cabelli for being on the show, and thank you to everyone listening in. You're amazing, and I'm so proud of you for being able to manage all the things on your plate. From me and the podcast team, make today the best day. And by the way, if you haven't listened to episode two yet, it's an episode from Tess Brigham about how to enjoy your days off instead of dreading having to go back to work or having to deal with the backlog of things that seem to pile up when you do take a day off. You can find it at handleeverything.com. Hey, in case I haven't said thank you enough yet, thanks for listening to the Handle Everything podcast at handleeverything.com.